Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, this is Mike here with some good news and some bad news. The bad news, depending on how you feel about Bob, Ben, and myself, is that the three of us will be taking a break from Lexicon Valley over the summer to focus on other projects. The good news, the great news, in my opinion, is that the show will continue on without us. It'll be hosted by Professor John McWhorter of Columbia University, an actual bona fide linguist. He'll be interviewing authors, academics, anyone he thinks is doing interesting work. Starting now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Lexicon Valley is brought to you this week by The Great Courses Plus, a new video service with thousands of lectures on dozens of topics. Right now, Lexicon Valley listeners can stream myths, lies, and half-truths of language usage and hundreds of other courses for free. Just visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lexicon. And by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umpqua Bank and hosted by Sujin Pak, download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I am John McWhorter. I teach at Columbia University. You may remember me from books like The Power of Babel, A Natural History of Language, and Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, The Untold History of English. Or you may not. But I'll be guest hosting Lexicon Valley for the summer. And my first guest is Benjamin K. Bergen, author of the upcoming What the F? What Swearing Reveals About Our Language, Our Brains, and Ourselves. Professor Bergen or Ben, as I've known him since our years in sunny Berkeley, California during the Clinton administration, is an expert in cognitive linguistics at the University of California, San Diego. And some of his work shows us that profanity is more interesting than just a list of bad words. For example, let's just get this out of the way early. Most of us are familiar with George Carlin's famous list of seven words you can never say on television. But for one thing, that was a good while ago now, so long ago that one of the words is getting a little archaic. I'm not sure how many young or even younger people are popping off with the word cocksucker, for example. Plus, Let's face it. These days, the other words on that list are used on television more and more. In fact, Ben, I've often thought that what we call swear words these days are more salty in terms of how we really use them than truly profane. And in your book, you include slurs, which some people would see as something different, as a kind of profanity as well. Ben, what is profanity in your eyes and ears? Yeah, that's a great question. There's no official list, obviously, either for legal purposes or for regulatory purposes. The FCC still hasn't given us a list, even though Carlin is now 30 years old. But there are actually other bodies that do systematically go through and ask the populace what they think Hmm. the words are that ought not be presented at particular times of day or to particular audiences. So the 
equivalent of the FCC in New Zealand and in Great Britain conduct these every couple year surveys, and they publish the results. And so, although we don't really know for the American public what the worst words are, we know what the worst English words are in the rest of the world. Hmm. And they do tend to be words that are derogatory terms for people or for groups of people. Those terms end up popping up to the tops of the list, even above the ones that are more likely to describe sex or sexual acts or body functions and so on. Mm -hmm. So if you want to define profanity as a taboo about the use of particular words themselves, Mm -hmm. not of describing particular things, but of using particular words, then the words that we think are most profane, at least as judged by these systematic surveys, are actually largely slurs. So that means that these days, if we're going to talk about profanity or quote-unquote bad words, then damn, shit, hell, and fuck are maybe less the point than they used to be compared with what we often call the N-word or the F-word as referring to homosexual men, etc. That's right. Okay. You put this in a very memorable way in the book when you're doing a kind of a world survey of how profanity tends to work. What would you say the holy fucking shit nigger principle is? See, here on this podcast, we can actually say it out loud. So what what is that? Yeah, what a relief to be able to say those words. <laughs> no bleeping. So when you look around the world at what terms groups of people find to be most taboo, most profane, both in English and beyond, you find that they tend to come from certain sources, certain semantic fields Mm -hmm. are most fertile for providing profanity. So it's not going to be silverware. Well, it could be silverware if it were silverware used by a particular group of people that was kind of stereotypical (laughs) for that group of people. Right. Or, you know, ornamental clothing that a particular group of people wear. Right. So there are definitely strange places that these terms come from, but the four major contributors are well, okay, the holy fucking shit nigger principle sort of lists them. They tend to be words that are drawn from (laughs) sacred concepts. That's the holy. Sex and sexual activity, that's the fucking. Of course. Shit is kind of a covered term for the things that come out of your body. Excretion. Yeah, that's right. And bodily organs that aren't necessarily associated with sex, although there's a lot of overlap. (laughs) And then finally terms of abuse or slurs that are derogatory towards particular social groups. So the holy thing, therefore, is that in some cultures or in English in an earlier time in particular, the hot spot of cursing was about that which was religious. So the idea was that you weren't to swear to God or the like. Is that right? That's right. That's actually where the word profanity comes from. Profanus is in front of, or outside the temple, right? So you have a long history in English and lots of other languages of taking the Lord's name in vain as being a taboo linguistic act. Mm -hmm. You know, it's still somewhat the case in English, although when you look at these surveys, people don't really overwhelmingly find Jesus Christ or goddamn to be the worst words in English, although they're worse than chair or, or pencil. Right, right. But in other languages, they have a much more robust system of holy profanity. Mm-hmm. The classic case that many people know about is Quebecois French, mm-hmm. where the worst words are you know, things like chalice and tabernacle. 
tabernacle. That's right. And these are the things that you hear certain salty people yelling on the street. Yeah, and so they're, they are these holy kind of societies. If it goes by society, though, if we can have a kind of a typology of societies and where the hot spot of profanity is, then what is a fucking society? <laughs> Well, you could make an argument that historically English has been that, right? <laughs> so there are lots of English profanities that I'm sure we could come up with that that are related to sex and sexual relations. The worst words in Cantonese mm-hmm. are mostly of that type. The worst words in Russian mm-hmm. are mostly of that type. I think what we really want to do if it were to sort of characterize a language and the society that it's embedded in is to look at the distribution across these big four categories. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, English isn't just a fucking society. It's also a shit society. And very clearly, slurs have, have risen as well. In the barbershop I go to, the guy I have is Haitian. Then the person next to him is he Russian, Bukharan, but he speaks Russian. He is definitely a fucking person. I mean, I have definitely gotten a sense from him that <laughs> Russian is a fucking language because everything is, I'm even reluctant to say it, but everything is the Russian word for basically vagina, 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 and it's used, you know, as various parts of speech. And I even addressed him about it once. I said, you certainly use that word a lot. And he seemed to be rather proud of it. It was it was very interesting. But a shit society then is one that is obsessed with various permutations of the excretion. And I suppose we are definitely a shit society in many ways. What about a, if we may, nigger society? Does that exist? Well, I don't know that there are places where you have predominantly slurs and not much of anything else. Again, you know, the landscape is sort of slightly different. So in German, let's say there's a lot of shit language. All that ass stuff. All right? that ass stuff yeah. and the, you know, Scheißkopf, which is now kind of quaint, actually, I think, in German. But yeah, lots of osh everything. Right. Ass, right. Yeah. But languages that predominantly have slurs, you know, the closest is really something like contemporary English, where, or maybe even better yet, where English is going, mm-hmm. where the strongest words, the words that get the most retweeted when people use them in inappropriate contexts and the words that lead to people being fired or get into fistfights exactly. are, are slurs. And there are new ones coming about. So retard didn't used to be judged to be as strong and as offensive as it now is. Mm-hmm. There are even new ones. So the kids in my class here at UC San Diego are familiar with this word spurg. It's an abbreviation of Asperger's syndrome. Oh, good Lord. And so these new terms that are coming around and that seem to be maybe most spicy in English oftentimes are terms of abuse or becoming terms of abuse. So maybe if we look forward 20, 30, 40 years, fuck may be pretty watered down, actually. It already isn't what it once was. And it may be that terms like Spurg have arisen. We will get back to the show in just a minute. Lexicon Valley is brought to you this week by the Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service, a virtual library of thousands of lectures on dozens of topics from history to science to, of course, language. A number of those language courses are taught by none other than Professor John McWhorter, including the very popular course called Myths, Lies, and Half-Truths of Language Usage, which you can watch for free for a limited time at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lexicon. This course is broken down into 24 30-minute lectures, and it begins with a lecture called Alarm Over the Decay of English, which addresses the never-ending hand-wringing over the supposedly dreadful state 
of our language. He fleshes this out further in a later lecture called Wrong Then, Proper Now, and Vice Versa. Again, you can watch this entire course, all 24 lectures, at no cost and no obligation if you visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lexicon. For my money, there's no such thing as too much John McWhorter, so check out Myths, Lies, and Half-Truths of Language Usage at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lexicon. All right, now back to the show. You know, I honestly believe that a Martian anthropologist to examine the way American English is used today by people of all levels of education and class would completely miss that damn fuck and shit are quote-unquote profane or taboo. It really is the slurs. The other day, my four-year-old, in her kind of perkily serene way, went off to the bathroom and she said, I'm going to go shit. And I knew that according to a certain script, I was supposed to run in and say, oh, never say that word, never say it. But I thought to myself, you know, by the time she's 11, she's going to be saying it all the time and I'm not going to have any problem with it as long as it isn't around me too much. Why exactly am I going to run into the bathroom, especially at this moment, and tell her not to say it, given that she probably picked it up from me and my wife? And I know the story doesn't end there, but I thought to myself then, I can't even pretend to think that she uttered a taboo word. If she had uttered one of these slurs, then of course I would have taken her aside and turned her upside down and shut her up in a little room and talked to her for a long time, but not about shit. But here's the thing. Part of the reason I think that she enjoyed saying that word, and you could tell she kind of liked it, was kind of how it felt in the mouth. And one thing I learned from your book is that curse words tend to have a certain shape. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I found that quite counterintuitive and, and yet it was fun, like most counterintuitive things. Well, yeah, we tend to think that there's something just about the meaning of these profane words that makes them taboo. But as you know, of course, for every profane word, there's a medical way to say the same thing. There's a childlike way to say the same thing. Right. So I was sort of interested, like, is there something about how these words sound that makes them, like you said, feel more profane? And the first place to look is obviously at how long they are, because we have this cultural idea that four letters is a special number of letters. <laughs> if you look at the statistics, it is actually true that there are more four-letter profane words than you'd expect by chance, actually more than twice as many. <laughs> it also turns out that there are more three-letter profane words and five-letter profane words than you'd expect by chance in English. <laughs> and what seems to be in common among these profane words is that they're one syllable long <laughs> and they have consonants at the end consonants like k or t right. or or maybe even two consonants like nt right and and <laughs> whatever word do you mean right yeah. uh, i can't imagine <laughs> and those and that particular pattern is again far more frequent among profanity than you'd expect in the language as a whole of course there are lots of english words that are one syllable long and many of them end with consonants but many of them end with no consonant uh-huh so you find that there are about three or four times as many profane words that have this particular pattern, one syllable, consonants at the end that you expect by chance. So the point being that a word like shit with the consonant on the end therefore gives you more of a kind of a, a bacon, dirty feeling than poo, which is the word that we had originally had Dahlia using for that activity. What is it about this consonant at the end, though, and the fact that it somehow satisfies our desire to sound off? Yeah. Well, first of all, you're exactly right that 
it does make it feel dirtier. And, and I know that because we ran a little experiment on this where I made up some new words that didn't sound like existing swear words. Hmm. And some of them had a consonant at the end, and some of them had no consonant at the end. And I asked native English speakers who had no idea what I was getting at, if this were a real word of English, mm-hmm. how profane would it be? Right. Sure enough, the ones with the consonant at the end were judged to be more profane. So there's definitely something about that group of words. Hmm. It's possible that this is something about English per se. So mm-hmm. there are many languages that couldn't display this pattern because they just don't let consonants go at the ends of syllables. Wouldn't work in Japanese, right. It wouldn't work in Japanese. It wouldn't work in Hawaiian, right? There are lots of languages that just don't do this. Right. So it's clearly not a universal thing. So the question is, what is it? And one really superficial answer is that the explanation is just that this pattern exists in English. So and then it reproduces itself, right? Exactly. It sort of accretes over time. When you are trying to make up a new profane word, you make it sound like the other profane words. Right. Or when you're interpreting a word and you don't know whether it was profane or not, an existing word, mm-hmm. dick, if it sounds like those other words, then, yeah, okay, maybe that sounds like a profane word. Right. So that's one possibility. It's sort of the rich get richer. Right. But there are other possibilities. So like you said, the difference between poo and shit among various other things, is that poo is the type of word that young children in particular have an easier time pronouncing. Right. So little kids have a lot of trouble with consonants at the ends of syllables. They're just not good at it. Mm -hmm. They can produce a syllable without consonants like poo. They can produce two versions of the same syllable in a row, poo-poo, they can reduplicate. Mm -hmm. That's pretty easy. So what you notice with words like shit is that they are non-childlike sounding words. Right. And so it's possible that what's going on in English, and this might be replicated in other languages, even languages that don't allow this particular pattern, is that the profane words just sound more adult-like because they sound unlike the things that little kids are likely to say. I like that. I especially like layered explanations like that. And here's something that I'll bet you don't like in the same way that I don't like it. Notice, folks, that's a transition, which is that I hate writing the introduction to a book because there's this expectation that you're going to give some cute one-sentence explanation as to why you're writing the book when really you're just trying to have a good time. In your introduction, you have what I'm almost sure is one of those things that you put in because you know the editor wants it and you feel like that's the way to write a book just like we feel like the way to curse is to say something with a consonant at the end. But you have a sentence that I think you actually end up bearing out in the rest of the book. You say, bad language has the unique potential to reveal facts about our language and ourselves that we'd otherwise never imagine. Now, is profanity good for you? What does it tell us about the brain? What does it reveal? Well, profanity is different from lots of other things that we do with language. It's different emotionally. It's Hmm. different neurologically. And because of that, you can use it as a tool to investigate how both it and the rest of language work in the brain how they work with respect to the body and the creation of emotions. In the same way that when you look across individuals who differ in interesting ways, those differences can reveal mechanisms that they share or that they don't share. So with respect to the brain in particular, we know that when people have damage to particular parts of their brain, 
the canonical language centers, in, which are usually located in the left hemisphere. These have names like Broca's area and Wernicke's area. These are mm-hmm. parts of the brain that we know and have known for 150 years are very intimately involved in processing the meanings of words and organizing the articulations of words. We know that when those brain regions are damaged, people demonstrate language impairments. Mm-hmm. So these are typically called aphasia, Broca's aphasia, Wernicke's aphasia, and so on. And the really interesting sort of publicly known secret among aphasiologists, but not commonly aired, is that even people who have severe aphasia, Broca's aphasia, they have trouble articulating words. They may not have any words, actually, that they can intentionally produce. This is due to a stroke or a lesion in their brain or traumatic brain injury or whatever. They nevertheless very often can still swear spontaneously. Hmm. So a person will be struggling to name a picture in a task. You know, they're mm-hmm. given a picture of a, of a duck, and they're supposed to say the word duck, and they can't say the word duck, and visibly frustrated, and they, they can't get the word out instead. God damn it. Right. And what this suggests is that there's a different set of circuitry that's responsible for the spontaneous, highly emotional hmm. use of language that profanity oftentimes, but not always, indexes. That's distinct and may have evolved differently from the system that's doing the rest of language, the sort of intent. This is all those weird things that are kind of down in the bottom of the brain and start to have very long names and that seem to be kind of primally oriented, like the amygdala is what comes to my mind immediately. That's exactly right. So the basal ganglia, the amygdala, the hippocampus, these circuits that are evolutionarily super old that we share with all vertebrates, in fact, right? and that do emotion regulation, that select actions on the basis of strong emotions, so fight or flight reflex, hmm. that sort of thing. That pathway appears to, when it's preserved, appears to allow people to continue to swear spontaneously, even if they can't articulate words, and intentionally. And that suggests that we actually have multiple pathways to language. We have one that we share with primates and mammals and and vertebrates that allows monkeys to issue cries out of fear or to alert other monkeys about danger, that that sort of thing. And we've got this newer pathway that goes through the cerebral cortex on the outside of the brain that drives intentional and reflective language production. That's absolutely fascinating. Another short break here, Lexicon Valley is also brought to you this week by Open Account. How much money do you spend every month? How much have you saved? These are really taboo questions, even among friends and family. You're just not supposed to talk about money. But where does that discomfort come from? Open Account is a podcast created by Umpqua Bank. Host Sujin Pak and her guests talk candidly about making, losing, and living with money. On the first three episodes, you'll hear a professional basketball player talk about his very first paycheck. You'll hear a Daily Show producer recall the extreme thriftiness of his parents. And you'll hear a couple discuss the role that marriage plays in managing their small business. These conversations end up being about way more than just dollars. They're about culture, power, class, and the very complex emotions that drive our financial decisions. Open Account is available wherever you get your podcasts, so download, subscribe, and get a little more comfortable talking about money. Okay, back to John McWhorter, Benjamin Bergen, and What the F. Ben, I want to ask you the sort of daily show question, which is that slurs hurt people, 
and yet you seem to think that we shouldn't ban them. Why? Yeah. So slurs do <laughs> seem to hurt people, and there's lots of evidence of this. There's some really fascinating work. Most of this comes out of Europe and Australia, actually, because I think for for probably well-meaning reasons, it's very hard to convince institutional review boards at American universities to allow you to present slurs to people. <laughs> well, I wonder why that's difficult. Yeah, yeah, but in Europe, it seems to be just fine. So there's a bunch <laughs> of evidence that when you hear or see a slur, it can be even unconscious. So it can be presented so quickly on a screen that you don't even have a conscious perception of it. But seeing a slur or hearing a slur affects the way that you treat other people around you. And it affects the way that you think about people around you, particularly the people who are insulted by that particular slur. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's an interesting study where people saw the word faggot or they saw a non-slur rough equivalent homosexual and they went into another room and were told that they were going to meet with another student at the university who was homosexual, and they were going to talk about the current state of homosexuals at the university. Hmm. And could they please pull out a couple chairs for them and the other student to sit in? Mm -hmm. And what the experimenters measured was not how nice they were to the other person or how likely they were to reuse this slur word. What they measured was how far apart did they put the two chairs? Mm -hmm. And after they had heard or seen the word faggot, they put the chairs four or five inches farther apart. So it's as though just being exposed to that word sort of creates this halo of negativity around that person. You sort of want to stay farther away from them. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of other demonstrations of things like this. And therefore, shouldn't we have formal rules in place that just tell people to stop using those words and think of it as an advance in human relations? Yeah, I think there's definitely an argument for that. And I think it's very similar to the argument for abstinence-only education. And that's worked real well. You know, there's lots of evidence that the more you tell someone that they absolutely can't do something, the more powerful that thing is as a taboo thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm myself, I'm a new parent, and I think about what are the things that make a child really want to use a particular word. Mm -hmm. And it's when there's a strong reaction. And Such as shit, in my case. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And what you're teaching a child or what you're teaching adults or what you're teaching professional football players, if you have an anti-slur policy, what you're teaching them is these words are so powerful mm -hmm. that we can't even allow them to be used. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take away any of the power of the words, which is ultimately what I think you want to do. I don't think anyone believes that by banning these words, no one will ever come up with another terrible way to describe a marginalized group. No. There's also a, a sort of tricky counterintuitive way that it, it can be counterproductive to ban these words, and that's because many of these slur words get co-opted hmm. by the very groups that they are meant to denigrate in the first place. For better or for worse, right. That's right. So um, so there's the confusion over a certain one of these words, for example. Well, can we just say that word? Yes, nigger versus nigger. That's right. So yeah. it's tricky, right? Those two spellings of the word aren't necessarily pronounced differently in right. many varieties of English, exactly. including African-American English, where the second of those two, where nigger is used in a lot of different ways. And, you know, sometimes it's used as a sort of a generic term that means something like Buddy. guy. Yeah. yeah. It's got this really new use that I just learned about recently. I hadn't thought about this till reading your book. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Well, there are a couple of linguists at UPenn who 
did this really fun study where they looked at tweets mm-hmm. that used the word nigga spelled with an A like that. And they found this really interesting pattern with a nigga. As an A, a nigga, right, yeah. Yeah, which appears to be used kind of like a first-person pronoun, so <laughs> me or I or my. Right. They found tweets that were things like, a nigga enjoying myself. Right, exactly. Which, you know, a linguist will quickly identify as, oh, well, that's a first-person pronoun. It mm-hmm. has to be because the myself agrees with the subject, which has to be first-person. Exactly. And so if you were to, say, be the National Football League and decide, as they have, that players will be penalized either in yards or in dollars for using these words, then you would be, well, you'd be disproportionately affecting members of the very group that you were trying to protect <laughs> from the words in the first place. Precisely. So it gets a little tricky, especially if these words are not necessarily terms of abuse when used, but terms that are demonstrating my group affiliation. Yeah, I can think of few cases where where do you draw the line is more pernicious than the difference between these two words that we're talking about. I have written several times that um, nigga is not the same word as nigger anymore, that a new word has formed. I hadn't thought about the pronoun part, and I'm going to be referring to that in the future, I warn everybody. But in terms of it meaning buddy, it simply isn't the word that it arose from. New words arise all the time. And every time I write that article, I get various feedbacks in various social media saying, no, it's one word. You have to think about its history. It shouldn't be used at all. But yes, it's a very, it's a very complicated issue. As is this one. I want to know in closing, Ben, what are you going to do when your child in a couple of years says shit? It's on my mind. What would your response be? Here's my ideology, and let's see how it fleshes out in practice. These two now. So I think that this is a perfect place for social coaching. Hmm. There are so many things that kids are going to have to learn that require calculating social nuances. Mm-hmm. There are some things that we do in the bathroom that we don't do in the living room, and we certainly don't do them on the train, and we don't do them in the classroom. (laughs) One hopes, right. And certain types of language could be coached as that type of thing. In the same way that you explain to a child why you don't do those bathroom things in the classroom, Mm -hmm. you can explain why it is that you don't use this particular word in public. Right. It's not because the word is intrinsically bad, because I don't believe that words have intrinsic value one way or the other. It's because of its effects on other people. Exactly. And so a word like fuck or shit, the child just has to know that there are going to be some people, be prepared for it, there are going to be some people who really don't like to hear that word, that Mm -hmm. it makes them feel bad. Mm -hmm. And that's something that a two-year-old can understand. When your teacher hears that word, it makes her feel bad. And so it's nice to not say that word around your teacher because it makes her feel bad. (laughs) You know, the funniest thing, I'm thinking of this right now, is that although when Dahlia said shit and it was at the end of a long weekend and I didn't feel like getting out of my chair, I just kind of let it go, I actually am very careful with her and and the word fat because of how it makes people feel. We talk about child abuse. I took her to McDonald's recently and frankly, it wasn't just once. We do it once a week. And she said at one point, the fat boy isn't back behind the counter. And because there is a, a very large gentleman who works there. And I cringed. I felt horrible. I pulled her away. And since then, we've had many conversations about why you do not use the word fat in public. To me, that 
was profane as opposed to the excretion. Children do need to be taught these things, but we might differ as time goes on in what we think those things ought to be. Well, then, Ben, thank you very much for coming on with me. This has been great fun. I really liked your book. The name of the book is What the F? What Swearing Reveals About Our Language, Our Brains, and Ourselves. And you can all get your hands on it and should in September. Thanks, John. Thank you, Ben. Please write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com and follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts and Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Mike Rollo. I'm John McWhorter. We'll talk again in two weeks. Johnny, la gente está muy loca. What the fuck?